Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and this week I have another Writer's Workshop episode for you, this time focusing on M. Night Shyamalan's The Village and the idea of writing a twist into a screenplay. So just to begin with this week's update, you will have noticed that there hasn't been an episode for a couple of months now. I've been traveling around the Mediterranean, I'm having a wonderful time on this trip, and after a year of, well, more than a year of lockdown, it's been so good to get back out into the world and to experience real life again. And so usually I like to start out the Writer's Workshop episodes with some writer's tips, and I've had some good ideas for writer's tips to give to you, but this week I'm just going to talk about finding your balance again, because I think that considering the situation that we've all been in all around the world for over a year now, 16 months more or less, I think that finding your balance is something that you might want to be thinking about again. Maybe this topic will become dated if you're listening to this episode many months in the future, but right now I think it's one of the most pertinent things we can be thinking about as we readjust and incorporate new things back into our life, especially outdoor social and those kind of activities again, it's going to be difficult to keep with the exact same routine that we've been able to build during lockdown. Because during that time, of course, we've been in our homes, there's been a much more structured environment. And I certainly felt that I had a lot more time for things like writing the podcast, etc. Finding your balance means just going back and thinking about the things that you really want to continue doing from that time and incorporating them and also being compassionate to yourself and thinking, well, there's going to be new challenges that come with the reopening of society and there's going to be a lot more demands on my time and I'm going to have to find ways to incorporate these things back in to my life. Building a structure, building a routine can be very helpful here where you set aside certain times of day that you know that you'll be able to negotiate with yourself or with your family, to make sure that you have time for your writing, for, for you focusing on your craft, uh, whatever it is that you want to do, you know, make time for that and incorporate it back into your life. The important thing to remember is this is a really unusual situation for everybody and it's okay to take a bit of time to reevaluate, replan, restructure and make sure that things are set up for the future. I wish you the very best in finding your balance again. And I hope that, I think today's quite a symbolic day because in Britain, it's the end of the lockdown restrictions, the so-called Freedom Day that I'm recording this podcast and planning to publish it. But of course, around the world, we've all had different days when the restrictions have ended. I live in the United States and it felt like the restrictions ended much earlier. Some countries' restrictions are still going on, but ultimately we're all kind of on the way out of this now and planning and being prepared, but also accepting that with change, we lose a little bit of the control and the routine that's been set up for us, but we can always go back and find it. We can always rebalance. I'd like to talk to you about how you can connect to the 21st Rewrite as well. There's the Instagram account at the... 21st Rewrite, that's spelled the 21st Rewrite. And if you go on the Instagram account, you can connect with my team, myself, 
uh, other listeners. And of course, if you have any direct communications you want to send to me, you can use the direct message system. You can let me know if there's a particular topic you'd like me to cover on the show, or if you have any feedback on something that I've done in a previous episode, I'd be really grateful to hear from you. Also, the preferred platform for the podcast is going to be Reason. I've talked about it previously on the podcast when it was under it. The name they were using during the testing phase was called Syncify. And Syncify is now Reason, Reason FM. It's a social media network slash podcast platform where you can connect with your friends and share the podcast episodes you're listening to, timestamp episodes, leave comments, communicate with the hosts, all of these things. I think it's the next step in the evolution of the podcast platform because things like Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, these are single bubbles where we listen in isolation chambers and we do get recommendations, but it's through an algorithm. And on a platform like Reason, you can actually connect with your friends and people who you might not know, but you start to follow them and you see that they're interested in things that you are and you can start to connect with new people that way. So I really encourage you, if you would like to communicate, if you'd like to leave comments about the show to use Reason as well, I'm on the platform and I'm really happy to get back to anyone who leaves an episode comment over there. All right, so... That's basically my update, and I look forward to sharing more writer's tips and ideas that have kind of come to me on my travels. And additionally, I have some really great interviews coming up. I'm really excited about the interviews that I've been doing recently, and some of them have been recorded. Some of them I'm still trying to figure out a way to connect with the guest and make sure that I can record with them you know, considering that the internet connections aren't always brilliant when you're traveling. But I have some brilliant guests lined up for you, and I really look forward to bringing these episodes to you in the near future. And one more thing I'd like to say, whether you're a longtime listener or this is the first episode you're joining for, I really appreciate you listening to the 21st Rewrite, and I really hope that it helps you with what you're doing, either if it's just to have an intellectual insight into the art of storytelling or you want to be a writer yourself. I really hope this podcast brings you something that you can't find anywhere else in another podcast. Thank you again. I really appreciate you listening. All right, so without further ado, let's get on to the episode. A Graveyard a tombstone with the date 1897 written upon it. A funeral service with a weeping father described as wilting. The attendees a congregation of typical late 19th century rural Americans. But by the next scene, it soon becomes apparent that there is something very unusual about this community. They live in a deep fear of the surrounding woods, from which unhuman sounds can be heard. The entire community is terrified by these mysterious creatures who live in the woods, and have a deep superstition of the color red, which they associate with the creatures, using yellow symbols of their own to ward them off. For now, it seems the creatures are appeased or dissuaded from attacking the villagers. But for how long? In terms of pure intrigue, the village stands out as one of the most promising of M. Night Shyamalan's thrillers right from the start, and the key is the physicality given to its world, broadly sketched out but wide-reaching in its implications. I've talked on this podcast before about how it can be a great benefit for a screenplay to have a hook or some action right from the first page. 
there's a right time for that kind of pacing. And there's also a time for this kind of slow, steady setup that we find here. And this tends to work when the setup is formulated almost as a question to the audience. This is all quite strange. What do you think is going on? The steady build-up must be written with the conviction that all of the scenes you establish are going to pay off and establish the rules of the world so that the later events make sense. The risk is that this sets off a race between writer and audience. Is it possible to remain one step ahead of audience expectations? So one of the things I'm most aware of with M. Night Shyamalan is that audience expectations are a big part of all of the films that he's done. And I don't really intend this episode to be an act of film criticism. I'm a writer myself, and I'm taking an interest in story. But I'm aware that The Village has gone through more of a reappraisal in recent times. However, I've deliberately steered clear of reading reviews of The Village this time around, because it seems to me that ever since M. Night Shyamalan became a household name with The Sixth Sense back in 1999, every one of his subsequent projects was hampered by audience expectations. That particular film that brought him to worldwide acclaim trod the successful path of suspense films that echo back to Alfred Hitchcock and beyond. The Sixth Sense was a worldwide phenomenon. Excited audience members started telling everyone they could about this film with its remarkable twist ending. Overnight, Shyamalan's name would forever be associated, for better or worse, with the twist. Every film that followed was marketed with that express promise and impossibly high audience expectations for the Shyamalan twist. His follow-up, Unbreakable, is perhaps my favorite of all of his stories, a highly mythologized comic book origin story grounded in the everyday world that was initially misunderstood by those awaiting a new sixth sense. Signs 2 was divisive, but exemplary of the narrative style that he was really most capable of writing, concise but broad character portrayals, a handful of cleverly placed details that were all linked together at the conclusion. And with each successive screenplay, it is possible to detect some of the weaknesses or flaws that would start to irk audiences at the time and eventually corrode his later films. But on the whole, I find The Village to be deeply imaginative, engrossing, and compelling. Could it be better? Perhaps. But more often than not, I feel that it's heading in the right direction and it's built on a very strong screenplay. Why have I chosen to talk about The Village? After all, there's quite a few Shyamalan films that, and as I've mentioned, Unbreakable personally is one of my favorites. But The Village was a request from two listeners, and so thanks to Dean in Birmingham and thanks to Sam, a longtime supporter of the show, uh, both for writing in and saying that they wanted to see me do The Village at some point. And I was able to think of a topic that I would really like to link a discussion of the village to. So the big question that I would like to address on this episode of the podcast is, how do you write a twist ending? As I've already mentioned, set up and carefully placed clues, rules, and character details play a significant role. But what else is going on? What are the other implications, for example? Does a film with a twist sacrifice its potential rewatchability? And probably most importantly in the case of Shyamalan, does expectation of the twist create an unwinnable situation for the writer? The script, which was initially called The Woods, was apparently stolen and leaked during production. So as a bonus at the end of the episode, I'll also tell you a little bit about the original ending and what was changed. 
Firstly, it probably goes without saying that the writer was going to have a completely different relationship to a story with a twist than those who experience it in its final form, being told to them. The story being told needs to be internally consistent both in its red herring, the version of the story that you initially believe is being told, and in retrospect, once the big reveal has been made. This ties into the idea of rewatchability that I just mentioned. Will more be gained on the second time around? Funnily enough, it's essentially impossible to watch The Sixth Sense again without being aware of the ending, due to how established it became in pop culture and the sheer number of times that it's been parodied. So despite it being the most expertly executed of Shyamalan's films from a directing standpoint, and buoyed by its phenomenal lead performances, the internal logic of The Sixth Sense suffers, in my view, when compared to Unbreakable, Science and the Village. And I think it shows that in The Village, the twist might be what got the seats to fill in hurried anticipation back when it was released, and for those same seats to empty with a slight sense of disappointment at the time. But as a parable for the flaws inherent in every vision of Utopia, The Village maybe even works better in the shadow of its revelation. And from the writer's perspective, it's kind of hard to see the wood for the trees, if you'll <laughs> forgive me the pun. This screenplay is really about fear and control, how benevolent intentions can lead to certain methods of control, all in the shadows of our imaginations about those unknown terrors we imagine to be lurking at the boundaries of our civilization. I think the reason the village works is because the argument can be appreciated on both sides of the story, both before and after the twist and that internal consistency shines through. We often talk about how good character is the heart of story, and you can see in the change of title, the shift focus from the dark fears, the woods themselves, to the people who make up that story, the village. One of the interesting things about the village is that it obscures its protagonist initially, and introduces the secondary characters first. This serves to make the world feel well inhabited, as well as aiding us in predicting the roles and behavior of those key inhabitants to understand how they relate to each other, what they care about, and what's at stake. As I mentioned before, Shyamalan tends to sketch out characters quite broadly, so the individual actors can bring a lot to their interpretation, and the audience can project and fill in blanks almost subconsciously. It's actually quite an important technique in film, due to the inherent limitations of time you want the key scenes with each character to communicate essential details and not get bogged down in specifics. You'll see similar techniques at work in a variety of those ensemble films from Ocean's Eleven to The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And I'm pointing this out now because I think sometimes it's good to remember that when a story gets quite complicated, and as a writer you might have a bunch of sub-documents on your computer or cards filed away with the descriptions of every character written down in meticulous detail. As an audience, we actually feel that we know a little bit about how the people of the village get along with each other, what kinds of things might have happened in the past, without it needing to be explained to us with so many specifics. So to start out with, we can take a look at a character like Edward Walker, portrayed by William Hurt who is clearly one of the most respected elders of the village and one of the most determined. He is the one who can most clearly put into words for us what the purpose of their settlement is, that is, to start anew. He's a leader, but he's not forceful. He wants to rule by consent. 
He wants to be an example rather than a tyrant. But there's clearly a tension between the elders, who are protective and have come to design this way of life in response to their personal experiences and tragedies after living in towns, and the younger generation, who have been brought up knowing nothing else but this, who have been told the stories of how terrible life is in the real world, ridden with criminality and senseless violence due to the great inequality and lust for money, and the fact that their village life is also threatened by grave danger due to the presence of the creatures in the woods nearby. In this younger generation, the standout figures include Lucius, portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix, who is also highly motivated by a sense of right and wrong, who is also highly conscientious, thoughtful, and very private. He's actually the epitome of this type of late 19th century, early 20th century man who comes across perhaps as very tame compared to our individualistic age, but he is pushing boundaries in the context of the type of society that he is living in. He questions when he thinks carefully that it is the right time to question. He's intuitive, but he's not unruly or disrespectful. He's quite private. He keeps his cards close to his chest which we might sense to be a response to being from such a small village where everyone must be the subject of gossip if they draw attention to themselves. Then there is Noah, described by Shyamalan in the screenplay as a tall boy, barely in his twenties. He is mentally handicapped. I imagine the question of Noah's age was happily revisited when the opportunity to cast Adrian Brody emerged, but Aside from that, the original concept, role, and indeed symbolism of Noah remains intact in the screenplay. And I mention symbolism because ultimately Shyamalan introduces a threat to the community in Noah's innocence, rather than just the cynicism of its governance, which for me is really where the heart of the story lies. And this is the part where I think audience expectations for a Sixth Sense-esque horror clash with the actual statement Shyamalan had in mind. Then there's Kitty, who's one of Walker's daughters, the eldest, and her romantic interest in Lucius forms an early plot point. And after she's rejected, we get our introduction to the second daughter, Ivy, who is blind, but seems to have a faint supernatural sense of the people who are close to her as colors in her mind. And she's carefully introduced almost as a side character, consoling Kitty, already on about page 25, a good way into the screenplay from which she will gradually emerge as the main protagonist. And there are plenty of others. There's the teenagers who test the boundaries and play at the edge of the woods, including a young pre-fame Jesse Eisenberg, and the actual children who start to discover dead animals left around the village. Among the elders, there are at least two other key figures, such as Sigourney Weaver's Alice and Brendan Gleeson as August Nicholson, who is the grieving father from the first scene. So with so many characters, it's clear that only a very limited amount about them will be expressively communicated. But interestingly, they don't simply come across as plot points. And this is because they have this dynamic of being able to fade into the background like extras going about their lives until Shyamalan needs to bring them back into focus for story purposes. It just feels like there's a lot of history there, but the only parts of that history worth communicating directly to the audience are those that are important in any particular moment of the story. And there's this symbolism as well as the boxes that are hidden in the homes of the elders, locked boxes, black boxes, that no one wants to open, that there's clearly some history to the founding of this village that no one wants to connect with. And I think 
by opening up that mystery early on, we're left with that intrigue and thinking that the characters have a bit more depth than is initially being portrayed simply by the scenes that we get to see. And those scenes are really interesting. They're really broad sketches, as I mentioned. They're scenes that connect together and create this whole sense of a village and how it operates, what's going on, who knows who, who likes who, who has history with who else, those kind of things. And when you really look at it and you really look at it as a screenplay in terms of the number of scenes and those pages, you see that actually it's really, really simple sketches that build up to a bigger picture. Now, getting back to the idea of the twist, a big part of working up to a twist is to distract by creating something that is equally interesting and gripping as a story in its own right. You want the audience to be asking questions, and especially if you stick a name like M. Night Shyamalan on the poster for your movie, you're essentially encouraging the audience to ask questions constantly. But you want them to be asking the wrong questions so that you can catch them off guard. This is what drove a TV show like Lost, which I think ultimately demonstrated that there's always diminishing returns on doing this for too long, because eventually the questioning audience starts to come up with ideas more compelling than the writers themselves. Luckily, in a feature film, that can only go so far, as you don't have a week between installments and a long season break every summer for viewers to get together online and speculate. You have two hours and a handful of twists and turns along the way. Shyamalan's screenplay does everything it can to bury its twist in mundane, seemingly secure details. The villagers' clothing, the architecture of their houses and buildings and the materials they use, their way of life, their tools, the way they speak, the date written on the grave in the opening shot, while at the same time doing everything it can to build intrigue around the creatures in the woods. Why won't anyone speak their name? Why are these dead, mutilated animals turning up? What's going on with the colors red and yellow? Are they trying to communicate with the villagers or attack them? Will the elders allow Lucius to go into the woods and seek help, medicine, communication with other towns? Unfortunately, having so much of a distinction is what led to the backlash from audiences at the time of the villagers' release. Because this is a different approach to The Sixth Sense, and that's the model that audiences were expecting. In The Sixth Sense, asking all these questions about what's going on leads directly to the final reveal. Whereas in The Village, it's clear you've been duped. And then you take the risk of wading into this area, which always annoys audiences. And that's a variation on the theme of, it was all a dream. And thankfully, the village doesn't rest entirely on that side of its story, but it is a key part to say that a lot of what you've believed along the way isn't actually what was happening. And if you go away from that thinking, oh, I've been essentially misled for the entirety of the story, and this was meant to be the big reveal, that can be frustrating. Now, one of the big rules of suspense or horror is that we find things that we don't fully understand or that we can't actually see to be far scarier than those that are revealed to us. And that's the heart of the concept of those we shall not name, also an idea utilized by J.K. Rowling in the Harry Potter series. Your imagination of Voldemort in the books as a child is much more thrilling than actually seeing this snake-like Ray Fiennes on a screen. 
And in the screenplay, you'll notice Shyamalan has a very loose description of the creatures, which can be reflected on screen by being less revealing with the camera. So there's this moment where Lucius wanders a little way into the woods, and the screenplay reads, We see 50 feet away, the dark form of a humped creature, standing upright. It suddenly moves. We see it stride away into the denseness of the woods. In the film, the decision is made here to only show a brief glimpse of the creature to maintain that suspense, through that unknowability and getting the audience to imagine what they do not see. There's a clearer example of how to write this kind of moment into a screenplay later, on page 51, when the creature passes the sentry and makes it into the village. Here it just says, something passes underneath. It is dark in form and moves devilishly quickly into the shadows. This is the moment that the attack on the village begins, and all of the inhabitants rush for shelter, and Ivy stays out on the porch waiting for Lucius, which creates an important moment for those two characters, how they care more about each other than their own safety. In the film, this is also the moment that the actual form of the creature is fully revealed, and they are really beautifully designed. Certainly, they have this terrifying essence to them, with the long claws and the protruding porcupine-esque spines, which kind of links them to the idea of the forests of the new world. But you also notice that this isn't really a key part of the screenplay. Character design is a whole other element to the making of the film, and you'll notice the sparse details in Shyamalan's writing really focus on what can be felt or can be heard, like the claws and the visual descriptions are very brief, but evocative, just using words like shadow, darkened, humped, So one lesson to take away from reading this screenplay is about how over-describing can kill some of the mystery for the reader. And also that same insight is used to actually create the rules of the world for the characters themselves. It's important to see how this idea of not naming the creatures, having them always obscured by the forest being this unseen but feared presence in the life of the villagers, is actually the thing that Shyamalan wants to tell a story about in the first place. And that's why this attack on the village makes for such an interesting midpoint. Not only is it a revelation from the audience's perspective that the creatures are real, and that the actions of characters like Lucius or Noah have consequences, responses from these creatures, it's also a moment to reveal Lucius and Ivy love each other through their actions, and finally for Shyamalan to make a statement. Here's what Walker says on page 57. We may question ourselves... At times such as these, did we make the right decision to settle here? We must remember why we came here. It was for goodness and a rare type of innocence. That is worth a struggle, I think. Let it be for all to take comfort in that no person was injured last night. We have always had, from the day we settled here, a gentle understanding with those who visited us. I have always pictured them in some ways as our protectors. They have allowed us to live here nestled amongst them, in this untouched place. By the markings we find this morning on our homes, I feel they were warning us. They acted as if threatened. We will do our best to discover what it is that has set them to action. I wonder, myself, if this simple way of life can go on. This is the link for me between the internal consistency of the story and the way films with twists drop certain clues for the audience along the way. Every story has a trajectory from beginning to end, and every scene takes place within that context. And here we see the story essentially reflecting on itself, on whereabouts we are on that line from beginning to end. 
So once we get here to the middle and we get this reflective scene, I think it's worth reflecting ourselves on where the story has taken us, and then we'll look at where it goes. This is the scene that basically can mean so much more when it's watched, after the revelation, after knowing what really happened in the village, and also that it has an important moment in the initial narrative too. But I do think it's one of the most revelatory scenes, and it's the one that really sets up the fact that the twist is something that can be expected. So up until this midpoint, the village has set up that it's set in the late 19th century, that the village is inhabited by people who left the towns due to the prevailing violence and danger. The new place where they live is in the shadow of the woods, which are inhabited by creatures they fear, that these creatures are real, as we have seen, so we doubt that it's a figment of our imagination anymore, and there's a love story that we're deeply invested in too. Knowing this is an M. Night Shyamalan film, we're obviously expecting a twist, and as an audience, we're expecting to get a full story with a satisfying conclusion. And we'd expect that of any film, not just a film by this director. The engine that drives the second half of the story is the romance between Ivy and Lucius. And I think this is quite instructional, because there's something else to the twist I haven't mentioned so far. Twists only really work if they affect a character that we care about. It isn't actually about turning the audience's belief in on itself. It's about turning the character's belief in on it themselves. So if it affects a character powerfully, then by extension it should hit the audiences too. So let's think about The Sixth Sense again for a second. It's Malcolm Crowe, Bruce Willis's character, finding out that he is dead that is the twist. We find out with him, and we watch as he realizes and pieces everything together, and finally stops seeing only what he wants to see and understands the full picture. And that's why when you re-watch The Sixth Sense and you already kind of know that the twist is coming, it doesn't actually mean anything to you as an audience until you actually see his character understand what's going on. That's the moment that it all leads up to. It's not the fact that the twist itself is what the audience member enjoys. It's seeing it affect the character. And the villager's effectiveness is bound by those same needs. In the first half, Lucius has been established as the one most likely to find the courage to venture into the woods. And the second half has him apologizing to the community for overstepping the boundary. Then there is Kitty and Christoph's wedding, with its sense of excitement and everything going back to normal, followed by another clear moment of suspense with a potential new attack from the creatures. Importantly, it's also written in that Walker and Alice, Lucius's mother, are afraid of what's going on, and it's clear the elders are no longer in control of the situation now as well. Then we get to what is probably my favourite scene in the entire film. The written conversation is brilliant, but the material is completely elevated by Joaquin Phoenix's intensity and his delivery, in a similar way that he was able to do in Gladiator and many other films since then. We get this speech on page 77, 78 of the screenplay, which begins when Ivy mentions, when we are married, will you dance with me? And Lucius reads this incredible speech. It, for me, it's the, the one little bit of the screenplay that really goes beyond just the village. And uh, I think it's one of the best moments in any Shyamalan film, which is Lucius's reply. And I think that's so related to the context in which it's given, that he's been such a silent character all the way through 
someone we've known has such an internal world that he hasn't shared with anyone. And then it all comes out in this speech where he says, why must you lead when I want to lead? If I want to dance, I will ask you to dance. If I want to speak, I will open my mouth and speak. Everyone is forever plaguing me to speak further. Why? What good is it to tell you? You are in my every thought from the time I wake. What good can come from my saying that sometimes I cannot think clearly or do my work properly? What gain can rise from telling you the only time I feel fear as others do is when I think of you in harm? That's why I'm on this porch, Ivy Walker. I fear for your safety before all others. And yes, I will dance with you on our wedding night. So it's followed by this proposal. Lucius acknowledges that he also plans to marry Ivy, and she's so happy and in love with him. But again, it's not just story moments, what happens when, but sometimes just the power of some great dialogue and the character change, a character revelation, perfectly delivered, that really makes a movie. And for me, that little paragraph of unexpressed longing is by far the best moment of any Shyamalan film, where I most care about any of his characters, and I don't think that can be overlooked. Some things just stand on their own like that, and a great screenplay, aside from all the plot and internal logic, just needs character moments like this one. Well, soon Lucius and Ivy are the talk of the town, and this is established by showing a scene where it's mentioned to Alice, so that it doesn't need to be established as new information as the scene that follows, which is when Noah, who also has feelings for Ivy, comes and stabs Lucius. And all of this explicitly character-driven story gives us a momentum and the reason to care about the twist. Or maybe I should say the two parts of that twist that are coming. The speed at which everything comes together and is revealed at the end of this movie is greatly dependent on those story elements also coming together. And I suspect that was the hardest part to actually write, to plan out and to make sense of as part of a coherent whole. But if you thought when I started this episode, as I did myself, that I was maybe going to talk about the ways you can combine competing elements to surprise the audience, then I hope it's actually a fun twist in terms of where this episode actually ends up, that the realization is that the twist itself has to be character-driven in terms of how the story gets there, and it has to be meaningful to the character to be effective. This is why Ivy, in retrospect, is the protagonist. It's because she is the one to whom the big surprises in the story are revealed. I'm certain that her blindness is also a key part of that statement. Protagonists often have a specific quality, which we often think of as being the chosen one. And in these stories, there's an element of destiny tied up with a specific trait of a character, which initially might seem like a weakness. An obvious example being, for example, that King Arthur is the rightful heir to the throne, but his lineage has been hidden from him and he's been brought up by a non-royal family until he is the only one who can draw the sword from the stone. So Ivy, being chosen to go to the towns to find medical supplies to save Lucius, is the perfect choice for a community deliberately trying to keep the outside world a secret from most of its members, because when she is there, they think she won't be able to see anything and find out the whole truth. Of course, she does find out one of the truths, and she is central to the experience of the second truth being revealed. As I mentioned, the twist needs to be something that actually affects the character. So the key scene is where Walker takes her to a shed that no one else is allowed to enter, and he has her step forward into the darkness. 
And again, here that technique of not quite seeing, not quite knowing is used to great effect as we see glimpses of the creature and she touches it, only for it to be revealed to her that it's a costume. Walker reveals that it's all been farce, a deception cleverly maintained by the elders to keep the community in an internal state of harmony. Of course, the irony is that the deception could not overrule human nature, that conflict broke out anyway, and that Lucius is now fighting for his life. Walker later says, towards the end of the film, Lucius is the victim of a crime, and that emphasis on the word crime, crime being the thing that they have tried so hard to get away from, and this realization that it is always inherent in human society and can never be escaped. This is a part of the twist that might bother some viewers, because it can be seen to amount to a it all being a dream situation. After all, we've been deliberately led to believe that we've seen these creatures, that they're real, and then the story turns out to actually be about the power of nightmares. Throughout human history, and particular just for ourselves and what we've lived through in the 21st century, we've experienced a number of examples of fear being stoked in order to justify control or acceptance of a government's path of action, and especially in cases where that was actually intended to be protective or benevolent. And that is represented by Walker and the other elders choosing to maintain this fear-based myth. Perhaps Shyamalan here is arguing for us all to be able to be trusted and to make informed decisions rather than needing to be lied to. That's what I think is his message here, but if it is, it's wrapped up in allegory. We can sympathize with Walker even because his intentions really are to protect, to try and create a perfect society. But once fear has been let out of the box, it's hard to reverse. We see that when the two companions selected to go into the woods with Ivy, Christoph and Finton both gradually crack and run away. Even after being told that they'll be safe, they can't believe it anymore. That unforeseen consequence of allowing fear to govern society is perhaps the most important statement that can be deduced from the allegorical story. Then all of a sudden, there actually is a creature in the woods, and a dramatic chase with Ivy only narrowly escaping. And all those fears were true after all, until it's revealed that the creature is Noah, seeking revenge on Ivy. Of course, she can never see that, and the secret is literally buried in the woods and covered up by the elders. And by this point, the film seems like it's been keeping us on our toes for so long that it can't have any more revelations left. But of course, then there's a finale, and the big twist is, after all, that the story took place in the modern day. Walker and his accomplices chose to set their new community on a false past, hoping that the more dignified way of life that they imagined to have existed before the modern day could be reinvented. Ivy manages to get the medical supplies from a worker who guards a nature preserve where they live, land that had belonged to Ivy's multi-millionaire grandfather, designed as a preserve so that planes cannot fly over. And if the revelation is only revealed to Ivy as a sense that things are not quite right outside of the boundary of her settlement, the real character moment spurred by this is actually for the elders, Walker, Alice, and the others. They are now confronted with Lucius's near death, with the question of whether it was correct for them to abandon modern life and create the secret community governed by fear. And they all choose to continue it, preferring it still to the dangers of real life. And so this twist ending actually allows a second story to be told, one 
in which the audience will now know the surprises to come and can reflect on the allegory about methods of control and the power of human nature expressed in characters such as Lucius and Ivy. And that is how you write a twist ending. Misleading, but dropping clues all the way through, turning the story on its head at key moments, but most importantly, by linking these twists specifically to the main character's own journeys. Because for a twist to be effective, it needs to be meaningful to them, if it's going to be in any way meaningful for us too. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that the actual ending of the village was changed slightly. And a lot of the screenplay seems very, very familiar when you read it. The dialogue is the same. The sequence of events only slightly changed by the editing process. But when you read the ending, it seems to be something different. And that's because in the original intention, Ivy is discovered by a truck driver and not someone who works on the Walker Reserve. And the truck driver does happen to have some medicine, has a first aid kit, which he gives to Ivy. And then it kind of ends with this little vignette, which is a moment of comedy, really, where the truck driver, who's just kind of been startled by this experience of meeting a girl out in the woods, then goes to buy gas, goes to buy petrol at a nearby station. And these two old Pennsylvanian gas station attendants basically he asks a few questions, they rip him off, um, adding some extra imaginary tax. And this old woman tells the truck driver, he asks who lives in those woods, and she says, well, no one lives there, it's for animals, it's just 72,000 acres of woods, no one's allowed to step foot in there. But the Walker family owns it, none of them are left. The history professor disappeared 25 years ago, and now an estate just watches over it. And as the truck driver steps away. He's kind of bemused by this whole situation. He's met these strange people in the station and obviously is still kind of riled up from this bizarre experience of meeting Ivy at the edge of the woods. And he sums it all up in the words, muttering to himself, crazy fucking white people. And I do wonder if maybe Shyamalan initially intended his cameo to be that truck driver. In the end, you'll see his cameo is as one of the attendants at the the border guards of the Walker Reserve, you see his reflection in the medicine cabinet when Kevin, the guy who finds Ivy in the final version of the story, goes and takes the medicine. I think that it actually feels like a really good rewrite. And one of the things, you know, the 21st rewrite we like to focus on here is on how you rewrite and make things better. If you have the opportunity to check out the actual screenplay of the woods, the village, and see that last scene and compare it to the scene that appears in the film, the film version of the ending is much more effective. And so that's my little bit of homework for you. If you do want to follow up on this episode and see what you can do with it, I would say just compare that last scene as it was initially written, this very broad kind of sketch of maybe ending things with a little bit of a joke and how it actually gets turned into something a little bit more meaningful in the film. Well, that's all I have for you today, and I really hope you've enjoyed this breakdown and exploration of some of the ideas of writing a twist and what the village conveys. I hope that if you rewatch the film, you have a great time doing so, and it's all part of this reappraisal of this early work by M. Night Shyamalan. After this point, you know, his career kind of goes on very much a downward 
spiral in the late part of that decade and the main part of the 2010s. And then, of course, there's been a big revival. And I think he's been doing some very interesting films in recent years as well. So, yeah, I think his stuff is something that we can really enjoy studying and seeing kind of from the perspective of what goes right, what goes wrong. Maybe your opinion of the village is that it doesn't do as much right as it does wrong or vice versa. Let me know. Of course, I mentioned that we've got the community on Instagram or you can join me on Reason FM and talk on the podcast app there. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening to the 21st Rewrite and goodbye for now.